0: Following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash.
1: Gordon's alive. Welcome to
2: Flash,
1: Gordon Minute,
2: presenting your hosts from Minute of Darkness and the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Brad, and introducing your intrepid explorer of Planet Mongo, Eric.
3: We are at minute 40 of Flash Gordon Minute. Eric, how are you this fine evening?
4: Brad, I have called upon the great god Dizan, so everybody stand back because I'm about to start going full Wolverine Berserker Rage in here.
3: You're just hitting a lot of pieces of pop culture there. This is fantastic. That's, that's what I know. When, when the Berserker Rage starts, that's when I know Eric's at his best. And uh, we have back with us today from Mad Max Minute uh, to my favorite guests uh, in the world of podcasting, Rick and Julia Ingham. Guys, how are you tonight? Hello,
2: Brad. Hello, Eric. We are doing
3: very well. Thank you.
2: Glad we could come back.
4: Yes, welcome back to the Flash Gordon Minute Studios.
3: It's, uh, it's funny. We're talking about the Flash Gordon Studios. Uh, this is actually the last time I'm going to be recording in this particular location uh we are recording on a sunday i mean saturday and uh on monday uh geppetto studios is moving we got a new home We're gonna have a fantastic new space for recording so uh starting next week uh starting next week you're gonna hear us from a whole different place so uh it's it's sort of sad i'm i'm recording by around a bunch of boxes and it's uh it's like, oh wow, we've done so much cool stuff between this and uh Man of Darkness and Cosmic Geppetto and uh it's, it's the end of an era.
0: That is a little sad. Yeah. But congratulations on the new place!
3: Yeah, we're very excited, and uh, we're, I've already like called out what's going to be my home office slash recording studio. It's going to be <laughs> a, a great space, and uh, it's it's uh, it, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe even do a little bit more with uh, better recording devices, and uh, not right away, but uh, over time, you. Uh, I'm hoping that people will be able to tell by the difference of quality, uh, an improvement in the uh, in the sound quality. So, uh, very much excited about that. But that's not what we're talking about right now. We're on minute forty. Erica, wa- why don't you recap uh, what happens in minute forty? Did we lose Eric?
4: Oh, I'm here. Oh, okay. All right. Eric's well, alive. Tell me. <laughs> tell me what you said there, and I'll I'll start talking.
3: No, just uh, if you can recap uh, minute forty for
4: us. Okay. Alright, so, uh, we've got Ming still uh, talking to Zarkov, setting up uh, what he likes to do uh, in his spare time with other uh, systems, and so I teased this yesterday, that uh, I'm going to tackle this earthquake situation that has come up on multiple occasions with many of our guests. Um, how they, he, uses, he mentions that he uses the earthquakes to test other worlds. That's one of the things he uses. So, I'm going to go for my old school Marvel no prize here and explain how they know earthquakes exist when they don't know what Earth is. So here's what I came up with. So the word actually, the word Earth was first used in Middle English, which started being used in around the year 1150 and ran until uh, was used until about the year 1500. People would be most familiar with Middle English. Uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is what was written in Middle English. So if the word Earth first appeared very early in that time frame, around the year 1150. It would have been about 830 years until the events of this movie happened. If they're a bit off with the calendar, they came back to Earth too soon, maybe. It's close enough to a thousand years. Mm. So let's say that they're at Earth during the previous trip. Clitus tells Ming, I got this great new idea for destruction, shows it to Ming. It involves shifting continental plates, the ground literally opening up. Ming says, I love it. Add it to our destruction menu. Clitus, what, what should we call it? colitis says he's been hearing the inhabitants lately calling the planet earth so they call them earthquakes
2: that is so much more comprehensive and intelligent than i think this movie deserves (laughs) (laughs) i love that it also brings to light one of those things where we kind of heard it in the minute 39 and now we're we're returning to it in minute 40 this idea that Ming tests life systems every thousand years. Now, if he's testing each one in the universe, does it take him a thousand years to go down the list of life systems before he gets back up to the top? Or is it a really quick process, and then he takes a long hiatus?
4: Well, he does say he likes to play with things a while before annihilation, so if he's playing with every planet for a while, he's playing with every life system for a while, he might be filling up the full thousand years and then just starting all over again.
2: In that case, it must be great to be
4: Ming. It's
2: just a nonstop cavalcade, a, a veritable smorgasbord
3: of destruction. <laughs> you know what? I, I feel like that might be like a missed opportunity that the, the writers could have uh, delved into where he, he was around a thousand years before, and then... And this is something that is a trope used often in uh, science fiction where it turns out he was behind all the terrible things that happened a thousand years ago. And they could, you know, play around with it. It's like, uh, have you heard of the Dark Ages? And he just, you know, could do a, you know, who has two thumbs and cause the Dark Ages. Like,
4: this guy. <laughs> well, also, even he looks, you know, he's there, there are some stereotypical devil-type physical features of him. You know, he could have gone down the road of, you know... You know, uh, you're always talking about the devil. Why, You know, you know why he looks like that? Take, you're looking at him.
3: Yeah, definitely. It, it was, um, yeah, uh, uh, missed opportunity, missed opportunity. Uh, I, I, I like it. You definitely get the nose prize.
4: The nose prize or the no prize? I don't want the nose prize.
3: Yeah, you definitely don't want to know the no prize. Uh, to people who aren't familiar, Marvel Comics used to have a thing in their letter pages. I don't know if they still do this or not, where if there was some sort of error in the comic book, If people would write in with an explanation to sort of explain away the error, basically they would get a quote-unquote no prize. And it was basically, and I think, I believe it started with Stan Lee, where it it, it just meant, hey, we'll recognize you in the letter columns, but you're not actually going to get anything. And I believe there was actually a story behind it where eventually people were disappointed they didn't win anything, so they ended up getting like a, a form letter back in the mail with their official no prize. And later an editor said it's like it was crazy because the whole point was we're not sending you a prize, and then we actually have to call it a no prize, and then we have to send them something anyway. The- nice call to the uh, to the wonderful world of Marvel. Um. So so what else do we have in this minute?
4: He said he likes to play with things a while before annihilation back at the beginning of the movie, but. He's telling Zarkov now, if the hand of Ming is recognized, instead of being written off as natural phenomena, he destroys it. So he he says, he, I don't know, to, to me, those two statements just didn't, they, they didn't match up well. You know, he, he's telling Zarkov that either they, they think it's natural and I leave him alone and I come back in a thousand years, or they realize that, you know, someone's doing this and I got to kill him. But at the beginning, he's like, I like to play with things before annihilation, implying Earth is gone no matter what. And so... To me, it didn't quite match up.
3: And thank you for bringing that up. And it was something that I wanted to talk about because we had a big discussion yesterday about how Aura doesn't necessarily have the uh, closest relationship with the truth. And I wondered if uh, this was something she got from dear old dad. Is he telling the truth now or is he just saying something to torture Zarkov even more? Where... He just sort of came up as like, oh well, you know, I wouldn't have done anything if you if if he hadn't realized it was me. Is he is is he being honest here, or is he just taunting Zarkov, knowing I'm gonna tell him the thing that's going to torture him, and then the further torture of them, you know, doing the mind wipe? Um, is him is this just more of Ming playing with his food?
4: Mm, I like that. Yeah, that works.
2: When it comes to characters and the truth, I often like to ask my co- Self, what benefit does this character gain by being untruthful what sort of advantage would Ming achieve by lying to Zarkov or saying something that isn't absolutely the truth because I feel like this is a very candid moment that we get between Ming and Zarkov the fact that Ming is just sharing so openly and I feel like he's being truthful because as he says you know He visits these systems with strange occurrences. And the destruction caused by those occurrences, that's the the joy that he gets from it. But the fact that this instance around, Zarkov launched his rocket and they captured it. Well, now he gets to escalate that destruction. I mean, when the rocket took off, there were little pieces of moon rock falling onto the earth. But I feel like that was a process that could be easily reversed once Ming was satisfied. Well, now Ming has reason not to stop that process, so I feel like he's being very truthful
3: here. Julia, what do you think?
0: Mm, okay. Well, I like the idea of Ming lying to Zarkov just for the pleasure of it, but this is a bit of a villain monologue moment. And traditionally, when villi- villains do their monologue, they're telling the truth. It tends to be expositional, where they're laying out facts so that we can better understand the story or their history or something. So I think he's telling the truth. And I was also thinking about this thousand-year timeline. And I think a thousand years is too long. I think if he visited a planet every couple of hundred years, destruction that he visits down upon them would set their society and their technology back. It would tend to reset them so they would have a harder time gaining enough knowledge and technology to recognize that this is somebody who's not you know a biblical deity and then would cause their own destruction
2: you could also argue that if he shows up too much they might almost (laughs) have enough people of a close enough generation that they'd be able to recognize it as a pattern like a thousand years is a really good spread to make sure that you don't have too much overlap in information sharing
0: well, the problem specifically with humans is that we do recognize a pattern. We do ascribe these destructions to deities. So I'm not sure that, that would make much of a difference. Hmm. But knowledge and technology grows exponentially. So once something gets a hold, then it's going to double. Oh, they say the computing power doubles every two years or 18 months. Mm-hmm. So allowing a thousand years for us to grow technologically brought us to the point pretty quickly that we would recognize that this isn't someone from another planet.
2: Yeah. I think the major advantage of waiting a thousand years between attacks is that you allow a life system to grow on its own unabashed. Cause I mean, either Ming wants to destroy civilizations or he doesn't. And I feel like, Visiting natural destructions is one level of pleasure, but utterly wiping a civilization from creation is probably an even greater joy that he has. So he wants to give them as much of an advantage as he can over that thousand years before he comes back. Because if, for instance, Zarkov never launched his rocket, well, that's 1980. Who knows what kind of technology we'd have in 2080. That might be a bit of a better opponent for him to fight, a more honorable victory, because it's a it's an enemy that has allowed itself, or has reached a certain point where it is a worthy enemy. I mean, he is an emperor, after all, and he, you know, can't get all of his pleasure from vaporizing lizardmen.
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> what I would want to know, and the thing that makes it interesting to me is the thousands of years, it's like, does that mean he he's been running Mongo for multiple millennia? Um, and we've talked before where it's such a destabilized system that he's uh, running here and he, him keeping everyone sort of fighting each other so they don't team up to fight him. And it didn't it didn't strike me as that's something that's been going on for so long. So the thousand years, I'll be honest, The thousand years just strikes me as something that probably we're putting more thought into it than any of the writers ever did. <laughs>
1: oh, no, come on. There's no way.
3: It probably just really no, sounded never, good. As yeah. like, hey, he's been doing this for every thousand years. It's like, sure, Bob, put that in the script. It'll
4: work. You want me to add that to the lazy script writing list, uh, Brad?
3: I think that might be part of the lazy
4: script okay, writing. You got
0: list. it. And. <laughs> A year is relative. A year to us is different than a year to Mars is different than a year in an entirely different solar system. So whose year is a thousand years?
3: Uh, that, that, that could be as well. It's, um, but, but it's probably still the lazy script writing.
0: Yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> one of the other, you know, when, when uh, Ming's going through his list of the natural phenomena that he does, one of them he mentions really stood out to me strange craters in the wilderness is one of the things that he does. First of all, I, I listened to that specific sentence about four or five times because I could not make out what he was saying. I thought he was saying changes in the wilderness or traitors in the wilderness. I had to look at the script to see that it's saying craters in the wilderness. And it just it just doesn't, it's not at the same level as earthquakes and unexpected eclipses, the other things he mentions. I, I mean, if I'm if I'm walking in the wilderness and I see a crater, oh, I guess a meteor landed here. It just, you know, it would have been funny to show that back at the beginning of the movie because the strange craters was not on the menu that they had. But, you know, if they had just shown like a guy walking his dog, oh, a crater, ah, run for your lives. I mean, it just I, I, I just I'm not feeling the strange crater as something that would scare. Me.
1: And
3: it's not really something that's a natural phenomenon that people worry about. It's, It's not crop circles.
4: Yeah. If he had said crop circles, that would have made sense.
3: I mean, has anybody else heard of like a, a real like weird crater thing that there's you know, old wives tales or alien abduction stories around? I I, I don't I, I don't think I've ever heard that one before.
4: Yeah, it just it, it really stood out to me as a oh, strange craters. Oh, 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 no, we're being attacked <laughs> by someone that's living strange craters and strange craters, by the way, in the wilderness, not in, you know, the middle in the heart of New York City, not in the middle of Paris and London in the wilderness well
0: who cares yeah everything else that he lists is an is active destruction and a crater is the scar from previous destruction yeah so one of these things isn't like the others
2: okay (laughs) the first thing that i think about when i hear strange craters in the wilderness back in i want to say it was the summer of 2013 yes it was summer of 2013 nbc put out a tv show called siberia And it was billed as a reality TV show in the vein of Survivor, except it was not actually happening with live people. It was a scripted show. It was not so much a survival drama, but it was a science fiction horror show. And it was really novel in how it approached things. And basically, it took people, dropped them off in the middle of Siberia, And then over the course of the series, you learned this story of the Valley Men and the Tunguska Experiment. And at one point in the show, they come across a gigantic crater in the middle of the wilderness. And there's a lot of mystery around it. And it was a really good show. It was like 10, 13 episodes over the course of the summer. And it was a lot of fun. They haven't actually come out with a second season to it, which is a real shame. Because it's been almost five years now, and it would be really hard to bring it back. But... The idea of a strange crater cropping up in the middle of the wilderness, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it can be quite mysterious and have a very dangerous and ominous feel to it.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm curious, about. I don't remember ever hearing about Siberia, the TV series.
2: Yeah, it was was on NBC. It was primetime. It was during the summer. That's when networks just kind of throw television shows on there to see if they sink or swim and not care much about them. Right,
3: right. It's also in like a burn off season. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. All right, kids. All our listeners, your assignment watch Siberia. See, I'm sure you can find something on it on YouTube. It'd be awesome if there was just like a spike.
2: It'd be awesome if there was like a series of videos where a guy who was reviewing every episode a couple of days after it came out. That would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> who, who would ever do a, a thing like that and then show up on a Flash corded
3: podcast five years later? Ugh. <laughs> uh. Fantastic. Uh,
4: I don't have anything else for this minute specific, but I do uh, have to slap myself on the wrist that I realized uh, one of the things we've been tracking is all the actors that also appear in the Star Wars saga in this movie. And I was so, uh, we were so enthralled by Max von Sydow's entrance as Ming, I actually forgot to mention that he is one of the people that also appears in the Star Wars saga, appearing mm-hmm. in The Force Awakens, uh, in the beginning of Force Awakens as Lor Santeca. So we have to add him to our list.
3: Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. Of, of, uh, of course, yeah. Good for him. <laughs> I love Max Ben-Sidell. he He's such a great actor. We call it out every now and then, but it's worth just repeating one more time. Just uh, such a wonderful actor. So accomplished as great actors, especially people who are a little bit older and very dignified. Um, they, they get to play great bad guys. And, uh, you know, between Max Sydow. As uh, Ming and uh, Frank Langella as Skeletor in the He-Man movie. It's like, okay, you, you know all those uh, stage awards you won and accolades and you know brilliant performances. Well, congratulations. Now you get to play. Uh, now you get to play this campy villain. And they, it looks like they're having the time of their lives. I, I hope they have as much fun performing the character as we do watching them.
2: The first person that comes to mind when you say something like that is Raul Julia in the Street Fighter movie. He played M. Bison and just
3: chewed the scenery like jerky. It was so great. Yeah, that was his last role. It was quite the (laughs) send-off. Yeah, that, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, the bad guy in Under Siege. So there he was, acting the hell out of it against Steven Seagal. Yeah, it's always funny those combinations of sometimes getting the actor with the pedigree to be the bad guy uh, to bounce off against perhaps someone with less experience or less prestige. Um, you know, and it happens all the time with um, comic book movies and genre films. Um, I, I just this evening before I started recording, I watched uh, Captain America: First Avenger, and you had uh, Hugo Weaving as uh, the Red Skull. And Hugo Weaving does this all the time, playing these uh, really great, over-the-top, uh, charismatic bad guys. You know, often it gets sort of younger, less experienced actors. So it's it's a good idea. It it gives them someone great to to act the act against, and someone to do some of the heavy lifting acting-wise.
2: As Ming was going through and talking to Zarkov in this minute, he mentioned something that piqued my interest. He said that. When he recognizes that a life system is a threat to him, he calls upon the great god Dizam. Now, that stood out to me, the idea of this deity that he calls upon the power of. And so I went and tried to find some information sources. I found a Flash Gordon wiki, but the only deity I could find referenced on there was called the great god Tao or Dao, depending on how you pronounce T-A-O, which I think is his Dao. But anyway, it's a giant figure worshiped by the denizens of Ming's empire. So it's weird that he would call upon Dizan and not
3: Dao. That is that is weird. Um and it was it was such a out of nowhere thing of him talking about this deity that he called down cuz Ming is such a god emperor. You wouldn't really see him wanting anyone else worshiped. He would Sort of want to be the alpha and omega, so it it sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, I'm, we'll have to go through all the f- following minutes. I don't think this ever called it called out again, Eric. It, it, it... Yeah.
4: No, it's not. No, it's the only mention of it, and I, I've I've always found this to be an odd moment myself too. You know, yeah, that Ming who sees himself as a god would call upon a higher power. I always thought that was strange.
2: And I mean, he does go on to say after calling upon Daizan. He says that these destructions are wrought for his greater glory, and then he leans into Zarkov to just add menace to the statement, and for our mutual pleasure. It might just be that he sees Dizan as maybe an equal, or a colleague. He calls upon almost a friend of his if he sees himself as a god-level individual. Almost like you would call up your buddy Kyle and be like, hey Kyle, I'm gonna blow up this world, do you wanna come and you know, revel in the glory with me, and you'd be like, yeah, let's come over and we'll hang out and destroy worlds.
3: It it would be awesome. It's like, yeah, you know, and then we went and got something to eat afterwards. It was one of those uh, two meals for 20 at Ruby Tuesdays. (laughs) (laughs) Ming and
2: Dizan, BFFs. Maybe Galactus will come and hang out with them too. I don't know how much crossover we
3: can do. (laughs) Uh, All right, Eric. uh, Well, uh, Rick and Julie, anything else that you wanted to call out for a minute 40? No, I think I'm good. I just
2: wanted to call out how how much of a a james bond trapped situation that zarkov has found himself in he's not connery he's not dalton he's not any sort of recognizable james bond type of person but he is strapped to a table with a giant laser pointed at his body and it's just such a golden eye moment no it's not Goldeneye. It's Goldfinger. It's such a Goldfinger moment. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's the. Uh, that's the. Do you expect me to talk? No, I expect you to die. Right. That's that scene.
3: That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking of. Yeah. You know what's great about that? That scene is pretty funny. Where it was parodied and showed so often. Do you expect me with the laser, uh, getting closer and closer? It's funny. I realized, uh, and I like James Bond, but I, I, I'm not a uh, James Bond completist. I remember they, they did a parody of that on an episode of The Simpsons, where the James Bond-esque character flips a quarter into the air, which hits the laser and it splits, and it, uh, the laser splitting uh, unshackles him. And, and I realized, like, wait a minute, I don't know, how, how did James Bond get out of that? And uh, spoiler alert for a very old movie, he basically just sort of talked his way out of it. I'm like, oh, it's a little anticlimactic. <laughs> I think I liked it better on The Simpsons. I was like, he, he 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 didn't, like, pick the lock or, or anything like that or somehow grab the guy next to him to have him. It's like, no, he just sort of is like, uh, I have what you want if you let me go. That's that's not James Bondish. <laughs> but he did better than Zarkov, we'll, we'll see soon. Zarkov doesn't get out of this at all, so. Not really. Julie, what did you find on your phone there?
0: A quick side note. It turns out that the actor who plays Zarkov to Paul was in a James Bond movie. No kidding. Yes. He was in For Your Eyes Only as Milos Colombo.
2: Milos Colombo, yeah, For Your Eyes Only. Yes. He was also Tevya um, in uh, 1971's Lither on the Roof, so that's kind of cool too that's going to play into not 41 but 42 i think well eric i think it might be a good time to let you know i'm i'm feeling really concerned about the fact that brad was dropped from this call and <laughs> i just i'm not quite sure how to deal with this do you have any words of comfort for me
4: well rick if if you're feeling bummed because uh you know verizon or skype or Spectrum or AT and T or Ma Bell or whoever is uh, you know messing things up and your phone's just you can't take it anymore. Sprint, whatever. Don't worry, Flash will save every one of us.
0: Attention listeners! You can follow us on Twitter
2: at Flash Pod and join the conversation on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute listeners vortex. Stay tuned for our next thrilling episode of Flash Gordon Minute.
1: Dude,